Hey, I'm Josh. And I'm Kevin. And on this episode, we have Jonathan Chambers. What is Jonathan? He is a DGA, first AD, and unit production manager. I honestly didn't think you were going to get all that, but you did, so you proved me wrong. Hey, I, I mean, we know Jonathan from uh, the area. He's yep. he's a great guy. We've worked with him on, uh, on a, well, you've worked with him for better part of 10 years now. Um, I just met him about a year and a half ago on Not Alone, yep. and from there, we've gotten to know him quite well. Uh, he is a very talented first AD. I think one of the most interesting things about him that most people are not going to know is that he worked on the reboot of Captain Kangaroo. And that's what actually brought him back to Florida. Yeah. But I mean, it's still Captain Kangaroo. Having not ever actually watched Captain Kangaroo, it's still intriguing. I've known you for a long time. Um, yeah, I don't actually, I would say when I first cage dreams is when I first met you. Really? Was it cage dreams? Yeah. And that was I was the second years ago? second no that's like ten at this point, bro. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it seems like it was just a couple of years ago. No. Ten years ago. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, that's it was right like around, what? Oh nine, oh ten? Uh, yeah, I think it was oh, ten. Oh ten? Oh, sorry. Sorry, ten. <laughs> yeah. Actually, my father passed away that year. Mm. Right in the middle of filming uh Pete's um what was the the martial arts film? Um what was it called? You're talking about the MMA movie? Yeah. That was Cage Dreams. All right. Okay. Well, no, I'm thinking the other one. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. There was another film that I worked with him on, which was a little demonstration piece for uh, a talent that wanted to do stuff. But it was about the same time. Anyway, my, my father passed away the day before, two, two days before the big day, which was all three cameras and crane and, and yeah. what's his, what is what is now the armature works. Um, it was like the big day and he passed away, you know, a day and a half before that. I and didn't know that. I missed the, the, that next day, uh, I was first AD and, um, uh, and, but I prayed on it and, you know, it was like, Hey, all these people are counting you. It is the, it's the big moment for this whole film. You need to be there. And, um, you know, I, I felt that he, my father would, would say, yeah, listen, this is what you do. You know, you're not going to forget me. I'm just not here right now. Right. So go do what you need to do. And these other people are counting you. Do not let them down because of me. And it turned out fine. Um, but it was also a great distraction for me just to be able to, turn my energy in a different direction instead of, you know, grieving. And of course there's always a grieving process, but, um, you know, I've always, we were brought up in a Christian family and, you know, it's not the end for some people when you die, that's the end. And so that becomes very traumatic where it's not that way for me. It's the net, we're going to the next place, which is better than here. Yeah. I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that was... I had a little side, side religious moment here. Not You don't have to put this in the interview if you don't watch. No, but anyway, that's, that's, that's right. It was, it was November, no, October of, 20, of, of 2010. Yeah, just yeah, so about 10 years ago. That's how long I've known you. Exactly 10 years almost. Well, I mean, short. Yeah. It's not October yeah. yet, but not, yeah, not, close not to years. That's, that's and I've known you, what, 10 months? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> a few months. Yeah. Prob- summertime. Pro- probably something to that effect. Um, yeah. You know, I... I we went and got lunch a f- 
what, like three months ago at this yeah. point, and mm-hmm. and just kind of getting to know you as a first AD, AD was pretty interesting. You have a very very vast background. Um, uh, you are you are a union. Um, yeah, I'm a Directors Guild Union Production Manager and First Assistant Director. Do I need to explain the difference? Please do. Go oh, ahead. Yeah. Um, first AD. I don't know if you're well. You're a little young, but there was an old show, old black and white TV show in the 60s called Wagon Train, which was about pioneers adventuring into the West End Conestoga wagons. And the guy at the head, he always did the, the beginning, he said, wagon ho, and he'd give this hand gesture. Like, you're leading the troops. That's the first AD's job. Figure out what the schedule is, where we're going, when we need to be there, and like, okay, come on, folks, and you're the guy at the head. That's my job as a first AD. Uh, assistant director is not the director, but a lot of people confuse that. Well, if you're the director, if that somebody's a director and you're the first assistant director, are you like kind of directing? The only real directing a first AD does is it is you direct the background action. In fact, in part of the director's guild, they have, you know, what directors do and what ADs do is the director gives his assistant director instructions on what he wants the background to be, notice setting the background. And then the assistant directors led by the first AD set up that background. So depending how large the crowd is, I may have a couple of other second assistant directors. You know, if you were on a, on a street corner and you had to set people over there on one side of the street and the other, then I'd have my ADs setting the action. And when a scene happens, um, I'm looking I'm looking at the scene, hopefully if, maybe sometimes a monitor, but usually not. Um, and I'm seeing that what the principals are doing and how th- I'm watching to see, does the background flow add to the picture? Sometimes the director wants a break in the action and wants somebody to do a lens cross very close so it blurs across the front. Or he wants somebody to cross in the back, you know, all these kinds of things. My role in that setup is to make the action seem natural to what the scene is supposed to be. That's just really about as close as I get to directing, though I do have my great I directed Steven Spielberg story. Oh, well. Uh, you, have you, you heard this one? No, I haven't. I, honest to God truth, I directed Steven Spielberg. Now, we take this with a grain of salt and I'll explain <laughs> what that actually means. <laughs> so we were. this is many, many years ago when I was in Los Angeles. We were hired. I was with a production, small production group that was hired to shoot Steven Spielberg doing the opening for the E.T. ride at Universal Studios in Los, in, you know, Los Angeles. You know, when you wait in line and they have monitors and somebody's getting you warmed up before you go on the ride. Mm-hmm. Well, since Steven Spielberg, that was his movie, E.T. He, he wanted to do the little talky part. Yeah, he says, hi, you know, I'm Steven Spielberg. I did this movie and you're in a blah, blah, blah. He has like, you know, five minutes worth of stuff. Well, we were hired to shoot that. And this is when Spielberg was shooting the movie Hook, which is the Peter Pan movie. So good. And um, so we knew we were going to get him for like, I can't remember. It was some ridiculously short amount of time, like a half an hour or something. And he was going to come after he had wrapped for the day. So we knew when he was supposed to arrive, and which was like, I don't know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon or something. So we got into, and we were actually in the uh, in the ride con- building that was being constructed. So we were actually, so you could see part of it in the background being built. Um, and so the director, the direct, not me, I was a first AD, but the director mapped out all the shots of the DP and the dolly. And we marked the floor of everything. So we knew if we got him, if we got him for like 10 minutes, we could get the material he needed to say for this without 
disturbing him very much. You know, we didn't know, nobody had met him. We didn't know how he was going to be. It was going to be a mellow guy. Or was going to be like, okay, guy, like five minutes, let's do this and, you know, crank through it. So we were prepared. So he came in and with his producer and, um, you know, he didn't need to introduce himself, but, um, uh, he chatted for a moment with the director and he said, well, let's go. And I said, great, Mr. Spielberg, here's your first mark. Will you stand over here? We did the shot. And he said, thank you, sir. Mr. Spielberg, would you stand over here? So I was directing him <laughs> to his different marks that he needed to do for his shots. So, I mean, I actually did say, would you please move to here? Here's your next mark. Sir. You, yeah. so you did I was, that so graciously, though. I, I did. And so we, we did the entire thing in like 20 minutes. And... When the director said, okay, we got it all, Mr. Spielberg, thank you very much. He said, really? We're all done? God, I wish I could hire you guys on my movie because we were so slow doing that movie. <laughs> and we said, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, we knew it wouldn't happen because they were, yeah, you know, they were crewed up and everything. But it was a nice compliment from him when he didn't need to say anything. But he was a really nice guy. Nice. So that's my steam. When people ask, you know, how many times do you go to a party and somebody says, you know, well, what big movie have you worked on? Or who do you know? Or what stars? That's my Steven Spielberg story. Because as soon as I say, I directed Steven Spielberg, it goes like, really? <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. And I, I thoroughly enjoy I that. It's a great story. It's a little story. You know, um, there's actually another one. I mean, one of the, the story that you told um, about the, the cars, the three cars that had to um, meet, oh. that was probably my favorite story that you had, that I've, I've heard you tell. Um, what... That was. Do you want me to tell you that one? Again? I, I I would. Um, it was Ford, not Ford. I'm no Hyundai. Hyundai. Okay. Yeah. So this commercial was. Boy, this was had to be like. Two thousand five or six, long time ago. In the early days of motion control, where if you wanted to do multiple passes in a scene, you actually had a camera that was was computerized and it m tracked the exact same motion every time you'd program in what you wanted to do. And this monster thing was as big as this table here. It was gigantic. It was a big pain. But that's the way you would do multiple layers across the same scene. So the scene, the, the commercial was, there were three different models of Hyundai car. And you see the first one in an urban setting, and then you see another one in a, a residential setting, and I can't remember what the third one was. What now, is, where did this take place? This is in Miami. And um, they're driving around town and the idea is that they all meet up at the end. And the last shot of the commercial is the three cars going around this big fountain in downtown Miami. But now that seems pretty simple, except for the fact that what was happening was you were seeing a line of these three cars. So when you saw the first car go by, we actually had to do multiple passes which the, with this motion control camera to show instead of one car – there was 50 cars. Hmm. So we had to shoot those shots. Well, then the grand shot, which is a story I told you before, mm -hmm. was on the, what they wanted was on the freeway, which is I-95, that the car, the lines of cars come from three different points and meet up at the exact same place, driving down the freeway while the camera is seeing the, um, skyline of Miami, all those tall skyscrapers of Miami with the sun rising in the background, or it could be sunset, but the point is the sun is very low at the, at the horizon. So it had to be done from a helicopter in order to get that angle. And 
these cars were on the freeway and they had to be lines of cars without any other cars except our cars. So that was kind of a complicated. Miami traffic. Right. So we had to arrange what the, what the CG guys told us is you have to have at least 100 yards ahead and behind of the cars that's completely clear of other cars. And if it's that's clear, then we can move, so to speak, move that empty space along with the cars and it'll be fine. But we needed to have the car. Now, nowadays, it would be a lot easier. But back You'd then probably we, just do it all CG to begin with. Right. Um, but the cars had to actually, the three individual cars, we actually, in that case, we used two pair, a three pair of cars. I don't really remember the reason that, but boy, so we had three pairs. They still had to arrive at the exact same point at the exact time from the helicopter's perspective looking down, which was the complicated part. So what we did was we arranged with Florida Department, FDOT, that they would not close the freeway, but we could do what was called a rolling roadblock, where police officers are in the freeway and they slow the traffic down and we could be in front of the police cars and they would basically be holding traffic back at 40 miles an hour. And our cars could be ahead of us. Now, again, the cars are coming from three different points. So I had an, an on-ramp to my right. If you think of left to right, I had it. I had an on-ramp on one side of the freeway, coming overpass, coming over and dropping down the freeway. I had the main freeway, and then I had an on-ramp. So they all had to get on and get together. And they only need to be together for about 10 to 15 seconds at this critical moment. The problem was you're, you're doing a roadblock on the freeway, so you have to hold those exits and make sure no other cars are getting on the freeway ahead of you, and so you have this gap. So I, I, um, I knew I was going to get three police officers, and the day before, I went to the three start points of where I had the cars parked, and with my stopwatch, timed the number of seconds it would take from the, where their spark, start point would be to the point they would have to meet up. So it basically was doing a mathematical thing. So at the moment of truth, I was in the had three the three cruisers on the freeway blocking the three lanes. I had another cruiser holding traffic at one on ramp and another cruiser holding traffic at the other ramp. And when I said lock it up, the off ramps locked up. The three cruisers we pulled onto the freeway like about five miles from the moment of truth, and they started slowing down, holding the traffic. And my first set of cars got in front. And we're coming down, and I'm using my stopwatch. I'm on the cell phone to the helicopter. I'm on the radio to the three different cars, groups of cars, groups A, B, and C. And the and the police officer is on his radio to his other crews, other officers who are holding the traffic and driving with him. It's all, it's, you know, timing thing. So we take off, and I'm looking at my stopwatch, or counting down, counting down, and I say, okay, uh, we, were, we were group, I guess, A, um, and we were already cruising and the traffic was being held. So I knew I had a clear spot in front. I could see we had the clear spot in front. And then I said, ready, group two, go. And then X number of seconds later, group three, go. And if my timing was right and everybody's doing their job, they would all line up at the exact moment for like five seconds right underneath the camera. And so we did that and went through. And as soon as we got past the, the moment, I was, you know, I saw those, uh, the directors on the phone and said, well, what do you think, sir? <laughs> and he said, well, let's do one more for safety. 
which means we got it on the first take. And we did it again. And it was just fine. But we had it on the first take. Wow. But it was pretty amazing. And I wish I had a copy of that commercial. I keep <clears throat> I went back on YouTube to try to find it a couple of years ago, and I did find it. But it, I couldn't save it. How much so, were you sweating that when you were having to plan all that out? Oh, big time. Big time. <laughs> I mean, think of all the factors. I had to have all the cars at the same time. I had to have a clear... The weather had to be right. I couldn't control that. The helicopter had to be at the right spot. You know, the sun had to be coming. I mean, there was this window of probably 15 minutes that it all had to happen. And if any one thing failed, it wouldn't have worked. How long did you have all the police for? I mean, how many takes did you realize? We only think, did two takes. Yeah, I know you did two, but how many do you think you would have been able to do had it not worked the first time? I mean, how Maybe how much, three. Maybe three? Maybe three. Yeah, it's not a lot. No, no, it had to really work the first time. Yeah. How long did it take to reset for take number two? Well, actually, actually it took like a half an hour to reset. I figured because, that. Because oh, yeah. by the time we got off the freeway yep. and then got back, it was like, you know, at least five or six miles to get back. You're doing on. an eight-hour day just for this one shot because well, actually, you have to get there. Yes. Get everything in. in yes. And this is something someone wouldn't think about. It's just Can't, to do this one shot. It's well, one day. Yeah. Eight actually, hours. We did, actually, we did it in basically half a day. You did. Once we got it all, I, I can't remember what time we started, but I certainly was there a couple hours before dawn and the driving team, the precision driving team um, was there, you know, but you know, getting all the officers and everything. But once the officers showed up, um, you know, it was like, and the helicopter court was co was coming from, I don't, I don't know if it was coming from Miami or National or for a small, another, you know, small spot. I mean, now we do it with a drone. Yeah. Um, but this was, you know, a big old friggin' helicopter for shooting filming. And so th we, they, ha they had to get up in the air, the cops. I mean, everybody had to be at the right place at the right time to make this thing happen. So... Air clearance as well. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. All of that. Yeah, because you're not just, you're not, uh, it's just in a helicopter cruising on by. You're having to hover right. and stay, and that needs its own different clearance just, right. to, just to stay there for an hour, yeah. just yeah. to float and be like, yeah, we're just going to take up this airspace and just. You can't loiter. FAA <laughs> <laughs> will be on your butt so yeah. fast. Yeah, I'm trying to remember now if after we did the first take, if the helicopter had to move out and then come back. Because literally, yeah, because it was literally like a half an hour to reset. Yeah. So I don't, I don't remember what he did. But, but mean, the cops are great, so yeah, that's, that's crazy. That's yeah. one of the crazy stories. Yeah, and that's why I, I had to have him repeat this on the on the episode. Yeah, no, that's great, dude. I, mean, I hadn't heard that one yeah, either. When, so. when we were when we were at lunch, and you, he had just briefly mentioned, like, oh yeah, I did a Hyundai commercial years ago, and it's just it's one of my favorite favorite jobs as a first AD, and I was like, well. Tell me the story. Like <laughs> you're gonna, you're, you're not. You, go ahead. You can, uh, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, you've been on a lot of jobs. Um, you've you've done a lot in your career. Uh, you're you're now based here in Central Florida. Yes. And how are you liking it? How you like this area? What are you What are you doing in this area that kind of keeps you here? Well, I've been here for about twenty years now. I came back in the late 90s uh, as a production executive and production manager on a children's TV series. We did a remake of the Captain Kangaroo show. New cast, new set. Shot at WEDU, the PBS station here in Tampa, and did animal segments at Bush Gardens and SeaWorld. And um, I basically never went back to California. I went back there a little while, but then came here uh, permanently. Um, when you did that show, did you... Was that set up in California or like, we're going to do this and we're going to send you to Tampa, that sort of thing? Or was it like, how, how did you kind of come about getting... The, the producers, the, the, the company that was funding it was Saban Entertainment. Oh, okay. And they had a half hour slot um, in the Fox Family Channel morning 
there was a block of time that, again, this is 20 years ago, that that was, was Fox Family Channel. And so they had this slot. And the producers from Los Angeles had the connection with executive producer at Saban. And then the question was, okay, we'll do a remake of The Captain. Um, and I guess Saban Entertainment got the rights to do that. I'm not, not really sure about how that came about. Right. But the question is, well, we wanted we want to do animal segments. Um, I guess the original captain, which I barely remember as a kid, but um, they, I guess, I guess original Bob Keishan, when he did the show, they would bring animals to the set. Because uh, I'm sure it was just on a studio somewhere. I don't remember where it right. was. But this was an expansion on that idea. Well, we need to do animal segments. Where could we do that? And then there was a connection between the producers and um, – um, a marketing company here in Tampa who had a direct connection with Bush Gardens and, and of course, SeaWorld as being, and we said, oh, they said, well, well, this would be great. If we could have a deal with those guys, we could go into the parks behind the scenes, do animal segments with the Bush Gardens staff right. who were the on-camera folks. And there's a couple of um, presenters that we use, one here and then one in, in SeaWorld, who talked about the animals and very knowledgeable. So we had experts on the set with the captain, with the animals, like the elephant or the rhino or whatever it was, um, you know, the otters or, you know, the seals or whatever. So we had experts there, which made these segments really great. Um, and then we would, then the original captain show where he would, you know, he reads a book to the kids and their songs and there's costume characters and Mr. Moose and Bunny Rabbit and, you know, behind the captain's counter and all that kind of stuff. So those, all those elements from the original show were just updated uh, in, in a modern way for kids. And it was really a great show. The sad part was that that was also the time when I believe it was the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers were just coming on. And the slot, originally, Captain was a breakfast show for kids before they went to school, you know, like 6.30 in the morning before they went off to school, 6, 6.30. That's what I remember as a kid. Um, but Saban decided to slot their most popular show in that slot and they bumped us to later in the morning after the kids were already went to school (laughs) and our show was geared for six to nine year old elementary school kids. Well, by seven o'clock, seven 30, the latest, those kids have already gone to school. So when they slotted us later, we had no audience. Right. We had the three to five year old kids who were still at home, but that was really the Barney crowd, which the it, the interactive level for a three year old is not the same as a six or seven year old, and the show wasn't geared for them, so it didn't do very well. It only lasted two years, but the the new captain John McDonough was great. Um, he is actually a um, he reads you know, what they call books on tape. He's one of those voices who narrates these stories and reads these stories. And so he had this wonderful voice and a great chuckle laugh. It was like, I mean, he could be Santa Claus. He was one of those kind of guys. Um, so he was a great captain. And, you know, it was a really good production, but that's kind of what got me here. And because the original question was like, why are you here, right? So I just like being here. I mean, I had done 20 years in Hollywood and done a number of things out there, but Frankly, Los Angeles, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania in the country where I didn't have a house across the street from me. I'm genuinely a country boy. And so being in the city, while I tolerated it, really just wasn't that appealing to me. And there was the Hollywood 
infrastructure, the way it's set up out there, um, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have family in the business. I wasn't born in the business. And I kind of gra gravitated as high as I could, but I just wasn't all that happy. And then when we came to Florida and did Captain Kangaroo, I said, well, the market's a lot smaller here, but this feels better. So I decided to stay here. And then I lived in Jacksonville for a little while before I came back here permanently to St. Pete um, with HSN hired me to come back. And that's not the whole story in itself. Um, but I worked all over the state. Like the Hyundai job I just described was down in Miami. I worked a lot for a director down there. And then I, having been here for captain, um, Jennifer Paramore, who was the film commissioner here before Tony Armour, she knew me really well. And so, you know, if projects were coming along, for example, um, there was a film that was shot in 20, 2013 called Six Dance Lessons in Six Weeks, which I... Originally in 2005, I did a, the budget and shooting schedule for the producers in Los Angeles to shoot here because it was a script about St. Petersburg. And they, they it took them 13, no, from 2005 to 2013 to get the money to do the film, but they got most of the money from Hungary. <laughs> I, 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 for some reason, they got the money out of Hungary. And... They used the tax incentive to shoot there, but they only shot for a week here in St. Pete to do all the exterior shots. We shot on Gulf Boulevard, the Don Cesar, some other exterior buildings, which represented the condo where the, the lady lived. And they did all the interior scenes. They built sets over in Hungary. Now, the interesting thing was, this is another little who have you ever worked with story. If you ever heard of a famous DP called Vilmo Sigmund? who directed Close Encounters. It was a DP on Close Encounters and third, of Third yep. Kind. He is Hungarian. So he was the DP. <laughs> this world-famous DP was a DP in this film, shot it all in Hungary except for a part. And then he flew over here, and I had an opportunity to work with him. A great guy. I mean, I, I didn't interact with him that much, but he was about maybe five, four, maybe five, six at the most, but he was this little bundle of energy. And the, <laughs> the guy was, I don't know, he must have, he must have been at least 65 or 70, probably 75. I mean, but you wouldn't know it. So unfortunately he passed away last year. Um, but I did have an opportunity to work with him on a film, yeah, which is awesome. pretty interesting. That's awesome. You talk, you talk a lot about kind of, you know, where you came from and how, how did you get started in the business and what took you to L.A.? Were those both kind of at the same time or were they? No, I um, when I was a teenager, uh, my parents, um, I, I, the John, there's a place called the Johnson O'Connor Laboratory, which was a, uh, 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 basically it's a it's a they've been studying for probably 50 years, at least 50 years now, um, the natural talents and abilities that people have and been scientifically quantifying them and relating them to success or failure in the work in, in employment. Like why do some people become CEOs and excel at it? Why do some people, they're great at being like a foreman on the shop floor, but when they get moved up to vice president, they fail miserably. Anyway, for about 20 hours worth of time, they gave me all these kinds of tests of, 
abilities and things I would have naturally have as natural talents and learned talents. And after that was all concluded, they gave me a report, which is what they do for their clients. And they, and they recommend what fields you may do well in, because if you're naturally talented in certain areas, those, those talents have been directly correlate to people who've been successful in those job categories. For example, if you have a certain particular quality, you might be a great architect. Great architects have all of these things. It's, it was, it's actually fascinating. Um, and they said that with the talents that you have, you need to be involved in a job where you need to be able to juggle a lot of balls at the same time. People who are <clears throat> CEOs are excellent at like three or four things. But if they they will not be happy or the person will not be happy if they're not utilizing their natural talents to the fullest so the goal of their study was to find where you fit in the scheme of all the people they've been studying what that would what where you might fit because if you're using all your talents you're a happy guy you'll be successful because you're doing things naturally you're not fighting against oh i really don't like that or i'm not really good at it some people you know are terrible at math or terrible being physical with their hands, you know? And so if you're in a job like that, you're not going to do well because you don't like it or you don't do it well. So this, the whole process was to figure this out. Well, they, the, the counselor said, where I think you need to be is in the motion picture industry. I swear to the motion picture industry and specifically probably something about on the level of a production manager, because a production manager needs to know what everybody in the process has to do, even though he's not physically going to do it. He needs to know what a makeup guy does, a, a cameraman does, uh, an actor does. He, you need to know what all these people, men and women need to do in their jobs and be able to balance all of that to get the job done. And so with that in mind, and since I'd been a, a still photographer as a teenager, I went to Syracuse University and, and went to their film school that's how I got started in the film business. And after I graduated, I moved to New York City. I wanted to come to California, but since I lived in Pennsylvania, mom and dad said like, California is like really far away. You know, why don't you like try New York first? And I really didn't want to go in the big city because I'm a country boy. I said, okay, fine, I'll go do that. Because I had a couple of friends I'd met in school. Syracuse is upstate New York. And so I said, okay, I'll go into Manhattan and see what happens. And um, as another little funny story. So, the first, as soon as I get there, you know, I got like a thousand bucks, right? So in Manhattan, I mean, it's super expensive then as it was now. What do I do? Where do I live? Well, I just got out of college. I'll go live in someplace like a dorm, the YMCA. <laughs> I swear I lived in the YMCA for about eight months. And this is a YMCA that's two blocks from the UN and the east side of New York, which is really nice, but it's a dorm. The you know, the bathroom, the showers, end of the hall, but you have your little room and it was great. And then I got it, finally got a little apartment, a six story walk up, no elevator, six story flight up for a little one bedroom apartment in the Upper East Side. And I was there for a year and I'd been working as a PA, just a production assistant, you know, freelance, just like we all know, hey, you got some work, right? And I made a couple inroads with a couple of companies. I was working for them consistently. And then the, you know, the magic Hollywood moment happened when the, 
the owner of one company, I was over at the office and I guess I was wrapping up a job that he did. And he said, hey, listen, come with me. I got to go over to see an ad agency, but I want to talk to you. I said, okay, fine. So I hopped in the cab with him. He's in you know, Manhattan, right? And on the way over, he says, listen, I really like your style. I need a sales rep in my California office because the sales rep I have out there is not really doing a very good job. I think you're a young go-getter kind of guy. I want you to be the sales rep for me out there. What do you think? And I'm sitting in the car and I'm in the cab. I'm going, am I hesitating for even a second here? <laughs> I said, sure. When do you need me out there? And he said, I don't know how soon you can get out there. Can you get out there in a week or so? I said, I think so. Like, what are you going to say? No. Yeah. So um, I got out of my rent control department in less than a week. My dad, um, we felt I had a little I did, car that I had from college was a little Datsun B210 station wagon. <laughs> this little tiny car is like not even big as this table here. Packed up all my stuff, left the other stuff back in Pennsylvania and drove to California. And I was there in like a week. Maybe 10 days now, I think. It was probably maybe 10 days. But drive alone. Oof. No, dad drove with me. The two of us went. Because uh, I, I couldn't, you know, you, that's too many hours to drive. It would have taken longer or would have stopped. Yeah, and you'll lose your mind. Right, exactly. Exactly. So you're you're selling out there. How do you turn that into, you know, kind of what you're doing now? Well, what ended up happening is that, um, <laughs> this is the other, the other side of the coin, as this company owner, the reason his sales rep wasn't selling very well is because he had a lousy reputation as a company. I didn't know that. He did well in New York, but in California, they said, we don't like this guy. So I'm a sales rep for probably six months or so, and I'm not getting very far. I'm going like, why is this so hard? I'm not getting appointments to meet agencies and showing the real. You guys know about that. Show the demo reel, have the meetings, right? I'm not getting them. So finally, I've been bugging this one um, producer at an agency. Uh, I guess, I don't know if it was BBDO, but it was a fairly large agency with national, but had a big office in LA. And I finally got a point with this guy. I'm going, yeah, good. So I go in there and, and he says, go on and sit down. He said, listen, I, I don't want to look at your reel, but you seem like a good guy. And you've been persistent, but I need to tell you about the owner of your company. He's not a good guy. I will never hire him. But I thought you should know the truth because if you knew the truth about him, you wouldn't be working for him. Jeez. So I go, oh. <laughs> Thanks for being frank. Right. Actually, it really was an important moment right. because during that interim, the, this owner of the company had hired a second director to get other business. Cause he, of course he probably knew his reputation was lousy. And so he, but he wanted to keep expanding the business. And so he hired another California director, a young, an ad agency guy who was a creative director that wanted to do directing. So it was a good opportunity. He probably didn't pay him next to nothing, but he was able to direct some commercials if we could get them. So this other director and I were able to secure a couple of jobs because we weren't using the owner of the company. And so I produced the jobs. Between the other director and myself, I started producing. And so now I was like, oh, I mean, I went from a PA, so I kind of knew production, but with the, the other director's experience in production, and these are little tiny jobs that, you know, little one-day shoots that we look at now and go like, that was it. But at the time, you know, when you're, how old was I? 23, 
24. They were big, you know, but, but, and you could do them with a crew of like half a dozen. So they were little jobs, but they were big to me. I got my feet wet. I started producing and we did a couple of these jobs. And then the owner in, in New York said, I don't like the fact that you're not getting me jobs and you're getting jobs for the other guy. You say, well, I got to get them for both of you. Right. And we're able to secure those. Well, he got angry. Yeah, rightfully and, so, let's be honest. Right. I mean, I, if I could have gotten him jobs, I would have. Yeah, but, but at least from a cost point of view, I'm bringing money into the company because I'm getting these other jobs. Well, he got, he and the other director had War of Worlds and the other director said, I'm leaving. You want to come with me? So I left with him. And we were together for a, a, probably about two years doing various jobs. And then he got homesick for Scotland where he grew up and he said, I'm going back to Scotland. I'm like, Okay. <laughs> so, um, that point I became freelance. And since I had been producing stuff, I built myself as a producer, production manager. And then somewhere along the line, there were these little jobs. I started ADing, and, um, uh, I got an opportunity to, um, do a couple of small independent pictures as a first AD and a production manager. I mean, you know, micro budget things, but it, you know, it's kind of got the ball rolling. And then I had an opportunity to, work on the children's TV series with the same producer they did Captain when they did another uh, two children's series. Um, and I came on there and that's what got me into the director's guild. Got so it. I had to put in, you had to put a certain number of days in right. all that kind of stuff to get in. Right. So I achieved those and got into the guild. So, uh, I mean, first of all, what, you, you, you literally pretty much made a round around the United States. Um, just, yeah, I, just, I, just want to notate that real quick. <laughs> uh, I, could, I could probably, yeah, there's a few States I haven't filmed in. But I, I, I would imagine, but I mean, it's still, I mean, to go from New York to go from Pennsylvania to Syracuse to then Manhattan all the way to California. Then you came all <laughs> the way to Tampa. It's a, it's a nice little, nice little roundabout. Yeah. Um, you just you just kind of took whatever door opened for you, didn't you? I mean, that's kind of how I mean. Yes. It, it, in its in its simplistic form, just you know, listening to your story. I mean, it, you you look left and go, well, this this is actually starting to turn into something. I'm just going to take that opportunity, right? Because this, our business is hard. I mean, I I view it as being difficult um, to get into. A lot of people want to be in there, um, and in, in Los Angeles. You know, if you have family in the business, if you grew up in Los Angeles, you have an opportunity to move into the into areas. Um, but not being from there, you know, I'm like I'm one of thousands of other people trying to do it. You're a foreigner. You're, you're a transplant to the area. Right. Oh, you came from New York. Oh, right. you know, they they're gonna look. They're they're gonna want you to prove yourself three times over. Right. Whereas I had experience that other people may not have had, but because their uncle worked for, you know, Warner Brothers or Universal or right. Disney or something. They got breaks that I couldn't get. So that was, that was frustrating to say the least. Yeah. So but no, that's part of our business. And so that's part of the industry. Yeah. And so I would, I would, was much more interested, I guess you could say in my freedom to be able to take opportunities to come along and try to develop some stuff on my own, um, without having, you know, granddaddy was a multi-billionaire or anything like that. It could fund me. Um, but to do interesting things, I found it more interesting. I still find it more interesting to wake up and go, okay, this project's coming down the corner. You know, I'm not going to the factory every day to put hubcaps on cars. That just never appealed to me. 
a lot of people love that because they work you know, nine to five, Monday through Friday, and then, you know, they live for the weekend and do all that. Because I never wanted that. Right. And so, you know, what's the Robert Frost poem? Two roads diverge in the yellow wood and I. I took the one less traveled by and that's made all the difference. That's kind of how I've gone. And for better or worse, I mean, you know, there've been opportunities that I've seen other people get and do because they went a particular path, like, you know, got into, got in as a page at NBC or got into Universal as a production, as a secretary or something, and then worked a way up into development and, you know, producing shows. Maybe I could have done that path. I didn't, but other people have, you know, so... Here I am talking with you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and we appreciate that. Um, what do you What do you think of the of the um, film industry in in this in this market, this Central Florida, if you will? I mean, I know you do. A, uh, I mean, you and Josh were just on a job um, over in the Orlando area. Um, you know, just what do you think of how production has developed? In Central Florida, it's interesting. We, the 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 six dance lessons, six which I did in two thousand thirteen. We were the last production to get the Florida film incentive, the state incentive. I mean, and because it was, and the producers didn't get their money for two and a half years later, because when they started the fund, they basically spent the money for the next year as more productions came in. But literally, we were the last one on the feature film pot of money that was ever done. And that has hurt us. Um, it's I, Sometimes I'm a little, if... In a perfect world, there would be no incentives. People would come to do work at a particular place for a particular reason. But that's not the way of the real world. The real world is that there's economic incentives wherever you go, not just the film business. It's all right. other kind of business. So in order to compete, Florida has need, needed to do something, and they stopped it, you know, eight years ago. Um, and look at Georgia. There's the example of what, well, if you had done the incentives, maybe those $4 billion or whatever it is they have up there, production, some of that could be down here. Will that ever change? I don't know. I've been told that um, within the legislature, there's enough representatives that feel that incentives are just giving free money to wealthy Hollywood producers. And in a sense, you could kind of say that, but you could say giving free money to whatever business as in tax incentives. It's really all the same, but it looks differently when you see a big Hollywood movie and say, yeah, well, some of your tax dollars went to that. Well, if you take into account the economic development that you got, again, look at Georgia, how many billions of dollars of money keeps circulating because of the film industry? So it's very, it, so we're not really in the game, but fortunately here now in Pinellas and Hillsborough, they have the 10% incentive, which is something, which the film, not alone that mm-hmm. you and I worked on last year, um, technically 2018, we're now in 2020. Yeah. Um, I d- can't believe it's already been two years. I know but. it will be two years in f- five months. Yeah. Um, that we utilized the, the 10% tax incentive, which helped, but it was a film for Tampa, all the reasons for shooting in Tampa. So that's good. Um, we have, a, you know, we won't know until March if the state legislature is going to do anything. If they did a tiny thing, it would be helpful to try to bring something back. But in particular, Tampa Bay, excuse me. <laughs> Edit that part out. Um, <laughs> where's the where's the burp button? Um, they're actively they're actively working at it. I mean, Tyler 
in particular is all over the place all the time. Uh, Tony, Tony Armour comes at things a little bit differently, but they're both actively working to try to get project here, which is, which is good. Um, keep seeing news. So, um, and I would much rather be living here than say Orlando. Yeah. Um, you know, we got the beach right here. Come on. Why, why do you want to go to Orlando? No offense, my friends in Orlando, but do you I feel, would much rather be here. Do you feel like the infrastructure exists here still? I mean, to really support, like, let's say, you know, something gets passed. If you build passed. it, they will come. Yeah. I, the moment we get more production here, all of our friends and coworkers that have moved out are going to come back. Would be happy to come back. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, that transition might, might take like a year or something, but there was a, a genuine incentive that, that was taking work away in theory from somebody else. Let's say a film went to, would have gone to Georgia, but came here because we had an incentive. All those crew people, when Georgia started building up five years ago and they moved up there or started traveling up there and, you know, getting an apartment up there to start working, they would just reverse the process and come right back down here. Yep. They would, if they had, if they didn't have family here, they would come down here and get an apartment and do that. And so once it got established again, they would be here. I mean, I, there's lots of folks, you probably cross paths with them and say, you know, yeah, I'm up in Georgia. But you know, when, as soon as you hear that, you're like, the, it, between the lines is, yeah, but I wish I was in Florida doing it. I would mm-hmm. have been in Georgia. I mean, I've shot in Georgia. It's a nice place, yep. but I'm kind of a closer to being a beach guy than I am a city guy for sure. So in that sense, yeah. And we have, we have so much variety just in the Tampa Bay region from, you know, Tampa down to Sarasota mm-hmm. that, you know, you can kind of find your little niche area. Right. Um, you know, you can be close to the beach. You can be on the bay side. You can be, you know, Tampa, St. Pete, Clearwater, even Sarasota. I mean, I know people who live down in Sarasota. Uh, you know, Austin, my um, first AC, lives down there, and he loves it just because mm-hmm. it's so quiet. He would rather, to my understanding, he would rather drive a little extra to set, but yet, you know, in the quiet little area. I mean, he went to school down there. So, um, but like you can kind of find whatever little area you want to be in. Um, and, and this area just kind of lends itself to that. Um, but then we also see that on set. I mean, how many times have we, have we faked, um, you know, a big city or we, right. you know, we've been in downtown St. Pete or, you know, this area just has so much, so many different visual appeals as well. Yeah, and all you need is a piece of green screen to put those mountains in the background when you need them. Yep. That's what I would say. What, what don't you have in Florida? Well, we don't have mountains, but we have green screen. You know, did you see in the, the last season of Jack Ryan when they did the wide shot of Tampa? Because no, it's, yeah, there's a, a scene in the show that happens in Tampa, and they have a wide shot of a dude, you know, going out on a little boat to like a sailboat out in the harbor, and it's a wide shot. But in the very distance, there's like mountains, and they basically found out that they shot the plate in like Venezuela or whatever and replaced the buildings because they were already down there. It was Columbia or Venezuela or something like that. They were shooting South. And so they did the plate there and then just replaced the the skyline essentially in post, but it's not our Harbor. It's not right. shot here. Somebody and there's, forgot like, there's no mountains. No right. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> that's oh my funny. God. Didn't even realize that. Yeah. Go look it up. It's, it's hilarious. It's all over social media. Cause they're like, <laughs> that's not Tampa. <laughs> yeah. so. Well, that explains why when I watched it, it looked it looked off to me and I couldn't yeah. put my finger on it. You um, have to hit pause and really look at yeah, it. Yeah, just, just in the three seconds it was on screen. I, I even I even remember vividly turning to my wife and being like... Are those bumpy clouds like, in the do background? You, <laughs> do you recognize that? She's like, yeah, I mean, that is that is downtown. Because well, the buildings yeah. are... Cl- the yeah. buildings are there. The iconic buildings yeah, that we just, know are there. It just felt but off. How it's shot and how there's like there's too much like shipyard, too um, close to downtown. You can tell that it's... 
you know, if you know the downtown skyline, you can yeah, tie I mean, I've been in downtown together. plenty of times, but not enough to know like every nook and cranny. I mean, I went to UT, so I saw that skyline every day yeah, for right. two years, you know. Yeah, you would have a better know, idea. like the back of my hand. Yeah, but I mean, that that does explain why both of us were like, eh, something, I mean, yeah. it's, it is downtown, but it's not. Like, all right, I may have to, may have to press pause on that myself and. Check it out a little well, bit more. It was interesting. I just, uh, I, uh, when I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because I lived there for 20 years, I'm going like, oh, I, I knew all those places. Like, oh, yeah, I've been there. Oh, yeah, I know where that, you know, which is, which, which is why I'm sure, I mean, it's, it's a, it's an interesting movie. When is it, is, is it one of the top five? I don't know. But Quentin Tarantino is a very much a Hollywood guy. And so all these little Hollywood things are there. And um, I was watching it with my girlfriend and She's had never been to Los Angeles. So I might be laughing or chuckling or seeing something. Go, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And she's going, what are you talking about? Cause she didn't, <laughs> if you didn't, and I'm sure if you guys didn't live in Los Angeles, you wouldn't see all those places, right. but it's a very much an in Hollywood kind of movie. And so since most of the Oscars are voted on by the Academy is in Los Angeles and every, most people, you know, will vote for that cause it's kind of a little bit of an inside story. I mean, it's a good movie. not, but they do vote for movies that are Hollywood based quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fine. You know, I'm whatever. In the old days, when I first got started business, that was like important, you know, could I win an Oscar? Now it's, it's less important. It's less important. Could I, could I produce a movie that people want to go and see? That is more of the reward that people would say, Hey, you got to go see the movie. That's good. Right. That's what you, that's what I'm more interested in. Cause I mean, really once you, once you kind of get into the industry and the blinders are off, you realize that a lot of those, especially the Oscars are all a part of a marketing campaign. Oh yes. It's, it's all part of a big machine. And unless you get in that machine, there's no chance really anyways. So yeah, I agree hundred percent. Can I just make something that people want to see and are entertained by? Right. Happy with that, you know, because I've actually done one thing I'm really interested to know or talk to you about is your UPM mm-hmm. indie films mm-hmm. seems to be like one of the first things they never have. Never have a UPM. Yeah. I don't know how you do the job without it. Yeah. It's really. So can you, can you tell someone that may not know exactly what a UPM is responsible for doing? Why, like what they do and why it's important that they should have one? Because I, I can't tell you how many, you, you know, small indie films you work on. There's never a UPM. It's the producers trying to do everything. There's an AD, right. right? But there's never, you know, you'll be lucky to have office staff, right? you know? So what do they do and what, you know? A unit production manager, UPM for short. Um, well, I would like to find metaphors. You know, um, oh, did you ever watch um, The Amazing Mrs. Maisel? Mm-hmm. Okay. Remember she works at the the store, what is the, I want to say B. Altman, um, you know, department store. And she gets demoted and she's stuck in the operator's room with the other operators. And the, in the old style where they take the cable and they plug right. it in. Again. Okay. In a sense, a production manager is kind of like that. He is constantly, or she, is constantly moving and connecting things. And in in a feature film, there are so many moving parts all of the time outside of the physical shooting that you need someone to be orchestrating that or conducting that or managing that process. In other words, the, the first AD is managing the set and making sure because they're responsible for the schedule, making sure the 
hopefully, the director is following the schedule, keeping things online, making sure with his second assistant directors that talent is getting through makeup and whatever. But there's a million other things going on behind the scenes that have to occur in order for that moment to happen. And a lot of those processes aren't happening instantaneously. They might be taking hours, days, weeks of time in advance or following up on the other side. For example, what happens when it's going to rain? Do you have a contingency for that? Well, who's going to manage that process? Or um, an actor's coming in from out of town. Well, how are they getting there? Who's picking them up? Are they going to get to set? Are they, they live here. They stay every night. Um, their permits and locations. Because sometimes you, it's a, it's a moving process where you might want a particular location. Well, Getting that location is not just, hey, can I come over and film at your place tomorrow? Right. Well, that might be weeks in advance. And then, well, can we do it? And then suddenly something happens on the set and you can't, you suddenly re realize you're going to film there on Wednesday, but you can't now. Well, the crew is filming stuff. Somebody needs to be behind the scenes managing that. Managing the paperwork. It's a lot of paperwork. And I think a lot of times producers think that, oh, well, I can take that on. At least young producers think I can take on all those responsibilities. But it's also, I think what they forget a lot of times is it's on their onus to make sure the movie creatively is being done, you know, equal to just being done. Right. And that's really the UPM's job is to kind of take up that workload of... Right getting the functioning assets done so they can concentrate on is the producer making the movie the way he should be make I'm sorry is the director making the movie the way he should be making it is it we're checking him we're watching dailies like is this being done we're also looking at the UPM's production reports you know as a producer and it's it's all just a massive system of checks and balances right. and when all those pieces are not there yeah you're limping you're you're yep. you got you know you're tied up. You've got, you know, one of your arms tied behind your back. The, the producer, right, depending on the size of the show, but for a film in particular, as much as a, a producer may trust the creative creative ability of a director or the actors, a film will be much, has a potential of being much better if there's somebody looking over the shoulder of the director to give them a, a box to work in right? because, because uh, directors as, as great as they are, they get absorbed in the creative process. And I mean, I, when I've directed a few times in my career and I'm not a director and a, not really my thing, but out of necessity, I've directed, I've found that you kind of, for one thing is you lose track of what time it is. You're into what you're doing. And if you don't have that first AD, you know, chirping in at you. And so imagine seeing, you know, the director is directing. The first AD says, hey, listen, we got to keep moving to you know, move on. And the director says, yeah, I don't want really to have quite the scene yet. If he has a creative producer that's right next to him, they can go, hey, where's this rank and the importance of the whole film? Mm -hmm. And like two seconds, they can say effectively, where does this moment rank in the whole film? Do we need to spend the extra time to make this happen for this scene because it's important to the big picture film? Or this is a meaningless scene, which is, a, I mean, it's a crave little scene and you want to spend more time on it, but let's look, step back and look at the big picture. And then if, if depending who has the you know ultimate power, usually it's the producer who gives the director as much creative freedom as they can, but the, the buck stops with the producer. That's really the way it works most of the time. Um, the producer can say, no, I'm making the decision. We need to move on yeah. or no, you don't have the scene. It's not right yet. Let's figure out what's, you know, I can tell you as I'm looking at the monitor, you're directing, I'm saying it really isn't working yet. 
and they can go through that process, hopefully with shorthand that they know each other well enough that they can do that. But you need that producer. Now, that's happening on the set while the film is happening. Everything else, the fireworks that are going behind the scenes, somebody's got to be managing that. Right. And the moment that producer walks off the set, he's now disengaged. He may be completely engaged when he's on the set. He walks off that set and now he's disengaged. So there's nobody, you know. And it's not as simple to just click and right. on and click it off as, yeah. as someone may think. Yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, some producers are better than others. But, and if, and if, and depending on the relationship with the director, some directors are really great producers in their own thing. Somebody like Clint Eastwood is a producer and a director, but hello, how many years has he been in the business, right? right. He's seen it all. So, but especially in, in the independent world where you don't have much money and you don't have money, many resources, you can really hamper the production if you don't have that production manager dealing with all the other stuff outside yeah. and the ability to make the decisions. When I am in a show as a UPM, before I take on a show, I'm really clear with the producers about my authority of what I'm allowed to do and where the buck stops. Now, I'm in communication all the time. And if I feel there's a, in particular, a, a problem or a solution and involving money and going over budget or changing something, I'm in consultation with them. But pretty much I have a, a pretty good free reign because we know what we need to do and I know how to get it done. And I want them to be able to be on the set as you know, as much as humanly possible to make that part of the process work. Now, there's an interesting crossover between line producers and unit production managers. Mm -hmm. Depending on the size of a show, that could be the same person. Right. And as a line producer, just to give, give a little bit of differentiation, uh, when I'm line producing, I am involved earlier in the project, and I'm um, there are other responsibilities that are closer to what the producer would be handling, though I, again, the producer still has final authority, but as a line producer, I'm still more of a nuts and bolts guy, but I get to be involved in some of the earlier creative or during the filming as well, but a lot of this happens beforehand. Um, as opposed to on a larger show, you'll have your creative producer, the producer, um, your line producer, who may bounce back and forth between the set and behind the scenes, and then your production manager, who maybe you'll see once a day on the set. Usually at, um, usually right before the end of the day, you know, you know that, uh, the Martini and Abby singer stories. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll need to tell you those. I, I remember when we were not alone, I would see you in the morning. Before anybody else got there. Yeah, and then I would see you when it was like, you're over there in the shadows, looking at the watch right. going, Steve, it's time to, it's time to get this, right. uh, you know, train going. So right. time to get close to wrapping up. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and you know, I need to do my part to try to keep things, you know, rolling. Right. But yeah, you're exactly right. It's it, small independence where they try to do that. Actually, the first indie film I did um, uh, was kind of like that. Hmm. Um, and it quickly realized that it can't be done. Right. It just can't do it. Well, that that's why we, on some of these indies that we've worked on, overtime is turns into a really big problem. Mm -hmm. Turns yep. into a really, really big problem. Um, you know, all of a sudden it's like, hey, can you guys um, finish in seven minutes? Because we just realized we're about to hit overtime. Right. Or like it's, you know, OT's kicking in and it's like, 
Yeah. Um, are you guys able to just do this and not bill us? It's like, excuse right. me? Yeah, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't, doesn't work. Where that problem occurs is not at the 11th hour. The problem occurs before you even got to the shoot day. Yep. In other words, if the first AD, in consultation with the director and the producer, mapped out a plan, then aside of, you know, camera breaking, an actor broke their ankle, the weather, there has to be... Again, this uses the first AD, but he doesn't have decision-making authority unless he's also a producer. Um, he needs to, the director has to respect the schedule. Yep. And when they don't respect the schedule is when you get in a situation like that where the director feels he has full reign and can do whatever he wants. And if he goes over time, who cares? It's not my money anyway. I'm just directing it. And so in order to direct a great picture, I need to go over time. That's not business sense. That may be, you know, when you have all the money in the world, great, go ahead and do that. Yeah. But when you have a small budget or any budget, really, when you have a budget, you have to stick to it. Now, try doing that in episodic television. The way episodic television works, it's basically visiting directors. You'll have the same crew, base crew, but you'll have a new director every episode. And the directors come back and repeat, but usually it's a kind of a checkerboard pattern where you have one director one week, a different director, and then a, maybe the first director will come back for episode three or not. But those, the director is like a visiting guest. I mean, the rest of the machine already exists. Right. And the, the producer, if the director is 10 minutes behind schedule, the producer will be saying, okay, you're done, moving on. Yeah. You know, and when you work in episodic television, directors who are very good at that understand that. And they get really good at knowing what they need to get. Right. To make the show. Because again, it's not rocket science. Well, maybe. We're not, as we always like to say on set, we're not curing cancer. That's right. Exactly. We're creating an entertainment piece and you don't get it done and you spend too much money, you're not going to, yep. you're not going to get it. Well, that, that uh, we, we, when we worked with Kevin Smith, I mean, he's done a lot of stuff for the CW. On, yeah. Uh, he talked a lot about working Supergirl and how and he Flash. just felt like he was there to just keep morale up yep. rather than do anything. Because he said, if, if I didn't say a single word, that crew could shoot those scenes without me. So I just felt like I was there to keep everyone happy. Right. You right. know, uh, he was very, he was very open about it. saying, you know, He's like, oh, for, he referenced some, one of the Supergirl episodes saying that he, that like there was one, one scene, I don't, I don't know it, but there was like one scene that he had the most input out of like all of the episodes that he had done. But like, it was like one scene that he was like, yeah, this was this scene. Like, I really feel like I did something to it. The mm. rest was, I was just there. Yeah. I was, I was hanging out. I was having fun. I was, uh, you know, it's like, it's, which is, which is interesting that to, to hear from, you know hear heard it from him but then also hearing it from you it it it, it, it it's very true so two things Rana. i've got one last question and i think kevin will ask he has one question he likes to ask oh, i haven't end. asked it in like two or three episodes I know. so i figured i'd throw it at you right, give you a you. softball um <laughs> so mean. one thing we hear talk talk a lot about and i'm curious to see your thought is page count like realistically what do you think is a realistic page count per day for a production it depends on what the show is if it's, well, let's use Not Alone as an example. Um, there was a big dining room scene, which I think was seven or eight pages, but it's all in one room. And we're talking, sorry, to give some context, when I say page count, I'm talking about per day on production, during production. Right. And so it depends on what the content is. Right. I can tell you that on days when they're, and that's part of my experience when I'm scheduling a show and even doing the original budget, I'm looking, I, I do a breakdown of the script and do a schedule so I can kind of figure out, well, how are we going to do this? When there are 
days with a lot of action or stunts or effects, your pace count is going to drop because it takes time to set those up, rehearse them and do them. As opposed to the scene I was mentioning, the dining room scene, five people sitting around a dining room table talking. You can crank out a lot of pages there. Right. Whereas I think as it was like six, seven, eight pages, whatever it was, you can do that. You're doing action scenes or effect scenes. <laughs> Maybe can you get a page done in a day? You know, it, it there is no standard. If I had to, if you, if you had a picture that was a mix of action and dialogue um, as an indie, um, it seems like the going rate is about five pages a day. When you do a big feature film, two or three pages maybe. But they're such massive productions. Right. They're different things. Um, again, how much dialogue, you know, how, how many times you have to do moves? You know, move, even if it's, if it's moving from moving one, like not alone, we were in the same house most of the time. Moving from one move to the other is not a big deal. Right. Moving inside the outside is a bigger deal. Right. It's a different kind of lighting setup. Do you have enough crew that they can be working in advance? Is, is the structure enough where you're filming in the story that they can get ahead? Right. Um, so, you know, I, there is no, you know, depending on the picture of I'm, I'm seeing, trying to do more than five pages in a day, I'm going like, are you being unrealistic? Or yeah, this is a heavy dialogue picture. Yeah, we can crank on some days six or seven pages. But the moment you start to get into lots of moves, lots of setups, a lot of different scenes, props, effects, whatever, that's going to drop your page count. Unless you're just going to blast through it and you get what you get. Right. But, and sometimes you do in Indies, you have, you know, you're trying to do a picture in a few days, effectively, and you're like, well, how are you going to do that? And But that's also when I think, you know, everyone creatively are at the table saying like, okay, we realize we have to blast through it, but we have to be willing to accept the look of the film in doing so. And right. I feel like a lot of time that conversation is iced over right? because the R2ers in the room want to live in fairytale land and say like, I can still get my artistic movie and do eight pages a right. day. Yeah. And, you know. After about day two, when you're already four pages behind because yep. you couldn't get it, and then the there's all shot. this crisis that goes on. And that, I mean. And that trickles down to all crew members. Sure. Like everybody sees it. There's no one, no one is oblivious from, you know, the, maybe the director's a little oblivious depending on how artistic he is and if he really has the blinders on for a creative piece. But going from first AD down to PA, it, it's, it resonates on set. You can see like, oh shit, we're, we're two pages behind. We're three pages behind. Hey, weren't we supposed to be starting this setup two hours ago? Like yeah. it, it, you start seeing it. It would be, if, if I was doing a small indie um, with a tight budget, if I could afford an episodic director, mm. a director, like a lot of episodic directors, well, some of them, you know, want to do movies. And um, when you're on a small budget and a tight schedule, those are the guys are going to get it done for you. Yeah. Especially if they've done enough episodic and they have particular crews that they've worked with, they know their style, they can crank it out because that director knows, I'm thinking like my friend, David Jackson, who, I mean, he goes back many years. He was one of the original directors on the original Miami Vice series, mm. um, has done tons and tons of stuff. I knew him when he first started out, he was an editor, which was brilliant because he 
for the first couple of years, he was seeing what the material was getting and what had to be, what coverage you had to have to make a scene work. So we were doing a shoot, um, a little weekend shoot, and um, an impossible number of setups he wanted to do. We were in one location. And about halfway through the day, I said, okay, well, he had this gigantic list of shots he wanted to do, which he was prepared to do, and we were prepared to shoot. But we got through the day and said, you know, we're probably a little behind. And he said, yeah, I know we are. And, you know, we were at lunch break and he said, he went through his list and said, okay, well, I really don't need that. That And basically went right down his list. And from an editor, editor's point of view, he said, yeah, that'd be a really nice shot, but I really don't need it to tell the story. And he went straight through and we finished the, the day. I think it was a 12 hour day, maybe a little longer, but I used to, there was one of these stories, I used to know what the numbers were, but it was something like a hundred setups. I mean, the camera was constantly moving. He would do one take, got it, and move his camera to another position just to give him additional coverage. Right. Or some inexperienced directors, they'll see a moment, and especially if they've shot more than 10 seconds worth, or they shot like a minute, they'll go, well, you know, part of it was good, but it really wasn't all that good. Let's shoot the whole thing again. Instead, other directors, in this case with David being an editor, he would know, listen, I know the front end was good. I know the back end was good, and the middle sucked. So I'll just move so the camera and move get the camera and we'll get a piece of coverage in the middle and I got it. Move on. Yep. So, but that's experience that again, for a small indie, yep. if you could get somebody willing to do that, to do a feature who maybe I'm doing episodic, I'd go for that every time. Now what you, you might sacrifice is that with a director who knows how to get it done, it could be a little bit more pedestrian in the look right? because he knows he's got to get it done and doesn't have the resources. So he'll try to make it up with additional coverage and occasionally spending a little more time on an interesting shot that might be important. But you get the job done. And you on a small industry, in the, the board is, is a story being told? Can I tell the story? So many times you get, you know, I mean, we've all seen it in these where, well, I don't know about you guys, but I'm really like, are we still sitting on the shot? Yeah. Why haven't we moved off this shot? Mm -hmm. You know, it would just be as easy not to do four takes, but do two or three, one or two takes and do two or three pieces of coverage. The lighting is almost identical. You move one light, bam, do the, do the cover. I've caught myself saying, like watching a movie with Brittany, um, my wife and saying like, I, like under my breath, I'll go, go ahead. Right. And yes. she'll be like, what'd you say? And I'm like, nothing, nothing. But like, I, I <laughs> like nothing. Just You're keep, editing in your brain. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, yeah. Come on, like, give me anything. Like, right. cut cut away to the hands fidgeting. Like, just, I mean, and, and, a, an empty cup at this point. I just want you to cut somewhere. Right. Unless, and sometimes that when that happens, depending on the experience of the director, I'll go, okay, he's holding, uh, my brain will go, he's smart enough to know he should have edited. Therefore, he's purposely leading me a particular direction to hold on this shot for so long. I mean, most of the time it's not. It's most of the time it's what you said. It's like, this, I guess this guy didn't have the coverage. Yeah, I mean, right. Especially on small indies, you see that all the time. It's like, they got time to do a master and maybe- And they a, spend too much time in the master and then they don't right. have the time to come in and get all their coverage. Right, yeah. So when you're, when you're talking to, um, you know, various producers and they're saying, well, we're not real sure we're going to hire a UPM. I would imagine somewhere, you know, in your career, you've actually convinced someone to hire a UPM. What, what do you say? What do you tell those people? Like, or a line it, producer for that. Or matter. a line producer, yeah. you know, like they're, they don't have the budget for it, but right. well, first of all, most of the time, if you have a line producer and a UPM, you're 
going to save yourself money on the overtime that inevitably is going to happen. So, And the crises that go on because nobody's behind the scenes dealing with whatever's happened because a producer's on the set trying to get it shot. You know, you're going to have a better picture. Yes, it does cost money because you're hiring another crew person, but you end up, people don't, people don't, until they've been there and they look back and they go, oh yeah, you know, I probably should have had somebody, you know, or, or they'll hire somebody, um, who doesn't have the experience, who's trying to move up. I mean, we've all been there, you know, how do you move up? Well, you take a job that's a little out of your comfort zone and, oh, you know, you don't really have the experience to back it up, but hopefully, you know, you fake it till you make it, you figure it out. You ask a lot of questions, you work, you know, long hours, extra hours to cover for your inexperience. And, you know, it's a little bit of on the job training and you figure it out and hopefully you don't crash and burn um, because you put the extra time into it. So, um, yeah, when producers say, well, you know, we don't really have the budget, I say, okay, but here's your consequences that may occur and you can roll the dice and maybe you'll get lucky, but the probability is you won't. You'll, it'll cost you, if you go overtime X amount of hours over X amount of days, you know, this is what that would have cost you. But if you had enough staff to make it happen, I mean, yeah, just do the math. One right. eighteen eighteen days of principal photography, one hour of overtime for the entire crew on eighteen days. Do the math right. when you have when you have a budget. Well, you're almost guaranteed more than I'm just I'm yeah, just saying you're averaging it out, but you're being very very generous. And no, one I'm hour I'm, I'm, I'm telling. I'm, well, what I'm saying is just yeah. do the math on one hour per day, like right. just right. like. Best, best case scenario, best case scenario, every day goes into just one hour. Right. Do the math and then go, you're not going to like that number, first of all. And then imagine if it's more than that. Right. Like you average two hours, you average and double then, time, and like, the, holy crap, you're screwed on the budget. Right. And it also going into overtime, the things that, that come up besides that cost is that you're wearing your crew out. They just physically are tired. I mean, you're already working a 12 hour so day and add lunch and it's really 13 hour and depends on how far they live. Your overtime increases the farther along production you go because everyone's worn out and moving slower. Right. They just, and, and, and when morale drops, people don't work as fast. In fact, really early on in California, there was a fellow who told me about his crew as a director. It was a DP who had the same guys work for him all the time and they got paid like, 25% more than the rate, the average rate for crew, their rates were 25% more. But in exchange, he's, when he asked for a light, two electricians would run, physically run to the truck, manhandle that light and get it up in like 30 seconds because they were being paid premium wages and they knew if they hustled They'd be working on the next job and they're going to get more than anybody else. And they, if they, if they slacked off, they're gone. Yeah. You know? No OT. Right. But they're off the show completely. So, but, but in exchange, the DP was able to negotiate for his team. So listen, these guys will kick butt compared to anybody else. And this show will happen fast and we can do more. You're going to pay them more, but it's going to be worth it in the long run. Right. And it's, it's hard to find those situations it usually you know a lot of times shows come up and you know your first team guys it depends on how busy because we're a smaller market here you know who's available at the time you need to film doesn't you know but this was los angeles where there was you know people could say listen while we're doing the next movie grant okay let's go you know and get you get your team well i 
I mean, um, we could keep talking. There's so about much it. more I want to talk to you about. Yeah, <laughs> just, just like so we've, I, we've told to a, a few people, we'll probably be having you back on, um, yeah. now, especially now with 2020 hitting. Um, you know, think about some topics that you you know on on the next few jobs that you're on, um, and and we'll see if we can have you on later this year, maybe okay. during one of the slow months. Um, you know, end of summer is always kind of nice and easy for everybody. We can relax at the beach. That's right. Um, but real quick. Um, Favorite movie and why? And, you know, maybe maybe we can, you know, or just mm. a, a favorite movie yeah. and why? Mm. And just real quick, just just give that to us because oh, you're, you're a film nut like the rest of us. I huh? know. Well, you go back, well, you go back to, my favorites are, from a, sentiment, from a, a romantic side, it would be something like Casablanca, an old okay. bogey picture. Or, I mean, from, from the, from the film, art story point of view it's it's um citizen kane of these these you know well-known pictures i when i was in college i had a whole semester of hitchcock it was a class was just on Hitchcock. i saw i guess probably 12 or 13 hitchcock movies so north by northwest is a great picture um trying to think of something a little more recently yeah but i mean even even then like casablanca i I love that film so uh how about this? Think of more recent ones for the next time, and then okay. we'll we'll see where we can go with that one. So, okay. um, JC, thank you so much for, yeah, for joining. Um, it was awesome. Immense My amount pleasure. of knowledge, and, and really, really grateful that you uh, you spent a few, uh, well, a good little hour with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Kevin, it's the end of the podcast. What do we need people to do for us? We need people to leave us a review on either iTunes, Spotify, or wherever they listen to their podcasts. Yeah, and that's pretty important for us because, you know, as we grow and bring on new guests, it's going to help us kind of get to the top of those rankings and, you know, be able to bring new and more important people on. And right? on that note, if you have anyone that you would think we should talk to or any topics you want us to, uh, to cover, please reach out to us on uh, Instagram at uh, FGI Podcast. Send us a message. It goes to Josh and I, and we will uh, we will talk to you there. I'll just forward it to Kevin. Yeah, make me to do the work. Yeah, that's what I'm good at. That puts a wrap on this episode. We record this live at Two Stories Media in Clearwater, Florida, and it's sponsored by Greenland Entertainment and Two Stories Media.